welcome to the fourth episode of the History Machine podcast. This episode is on the Punic Wars, and I'm your host, Niall, and my co-host is... Cottle. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, if this is your first episode, you can go back and listen to the first three. However, we can give you a brief introduction on what this is about. So, Cottle, would you like to explain the History Machine briefly? So the History Machine is an AI which I made. It's trained on a database of historical battles to determine what should have happened. Uh, What odds should each general have had to win? uh, How many casualties should they have had? And how likely was each commander to die or get captured in battle? It then compares what it thinks should have happened with what actually happened, and it sees how much each general exceeded expectations or fell below expectations. Yeah, perfect. So in summary, it pretty much uh, is an artificial intelligence that will churn out some results and tell us who is good and who is bad in terms of military ability. So with that in mind we're about to start episode 4 on the Punic Wars. So really the first question is why is it called the Punic Wars? And it turns out that history is written by the winners. In this case the winners are Rome. Rome decided to call this the Punic Wars because their enemy at the time Carthage was a descendant of a Phoenician colony. And because the Romans pronounced the Phoenicians as Punic, we call it the Punic Wars. So to begin, I suppose we have to talk about the two major players of these wars and what they were involved with. The first is much more famous, Rome. Rome is an Italian city-state that eventually expanded, regionalised and conquered most of modern-day Italy. At the time that the Punic Wars happen, Rome is now its own regional power and it's going to start expanding throughout the Mediterranean. Similarly, though, Carthage, roughly located in modern-day Tunisia, is a North African city-state, and they are expanding, and they have several colonies, some in Spain and throughout the Mediterranean. Historically, Carthage are a very powerful naval power, and Rome is an extremely powerful land-based power. So, with all of that in mind, the two end up getting very large, very powerful, and start to come to blows. And this all begins when a little bit of an incident happens in Sicily. So, in Sicily, there was a... Italian-based colony. They had a tyrant on the throne who had a mercenary army and on his death decided he was going to disband the army. That mercenary army decided this isn't the best idea so they decided then to instead take over the city, become effectively a wild rampant army that would control this area. They appealed to both the Italians and then to the Carthaginians. They were both brought in and that's when they started getting into a little bit of conflict. So the First Punic War What makes this very interesting is that two major regional powers are going at it for domination of the Mediterranean. The first is Rome and the second is Carthage. Carthage is a strong naval power, Rome is a strong land power. So I suppose war started because you had just had these two almost empires in the same region. You know, simply put, Mediterranean isn't big enough for the two of us. This, you know, started out with a proxy war in Sicily, but uh, Mm -hmm. soon became full-fledged war between the two of them. And really, we'll only dip lightly into, I think, the First Punic War compared to the Second. Um, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. extremely complicated, but most of what you need to know is early on, extremely even between the two sides. Uh, as you said, Rome a little better on land because Carthage mostly just had mercenaries, but Carthage a good bit better, you know, naval power because they're basically more of a trade empire. And it was just kind of a stalemate for a very, very long time. Uh, an example of this is the Battle of Agrigentum, which was kind of the first major pitch battle of the First Punic War. Relatively easy, even troops, yes. but even though Rome won this, it being on land, uh, they just, mm-hmm. they took such he- heavy losses, they took way heavier losses than the Carthaginians took, 
and the Carthaginian <laughs> army afterwards was able to escape. So it ended up being just a strategic draw. And you just had lots of situations like this where neither army was really able to take out the other one. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, like the history machine, it does have this as a surprising win. It, it wins over expectation, whereas about 0.75. So, you know, it was a big win okay. for, for Rome on paper, but then you look at the casualties mm-hmm. dealt and it's nothing at all, really. It's it's kind of, you know, the, the minimum expected of them and it just wasn't enough of a of a blow to knock Carthage out of the war but at all. I think I'm going to go into a little bit of an explanation behind the Roman unit types and the Carthaginian unit types to help explain why this might have happened. So remember how we were talking about the Greeks in an earlier episode we explained what the phalanx was and that it was that tight uh, packed kind of unit with the shields and the spears and their very rigid and close held together formation. Well, the Romans originally used a phalanx in battle because they adopted it from Greek city-states. Now, the Romans are incredible when it comes to adapting, innovating and stealing ideas. If they find something and they think it works and it works well, they will take it. If they are using a current technology and it's outdated, they will drop that like a hot potato. So, uh, the Romans eventually, they do start with a phalanx formation and when they get into particular battles with one of their old enemies, the Samnites, they realize that in the hilly terrain that they're fighting the Samnites, the phalanx is not as suitable of a unit formation as they would like it to be because when they go over very rough terrain that's very uneven over long distances, it makes the cohesion terrible and it doesn't quite pan out correctly. So what they adopted is actually a formation that was used by the Samnites called a maniple. And if you want to visualize a maniple, it is the number five side of a dice. It is that kind of a checkerboard layout formation. And the Romans decide that this is going to be their most useful formation. And this is what they will adopt. This is the new effective. It's often described as a phalanx with a hinge because it has a certain amount of movability. The Romans as well are incredibly unusual compared to other ancient armies at the time because they have three lines. Now, there's a difference between lines and ranks. We've mentioned ranks before where ranks might be eight men deep or 10 men deep or 60 men deep. That's the idea. But a line is physically a big line of ranks or a big line of men and there might be a couple of hundred yards of empty space and then another line behind it. And the Romans incorporated three lines and they incorporated three lines in a time when most people only had one. And the Roman three lines are all distinctive from each other. The first is called the Hastati, and they are young Romans in the absolute prime of youth in their life, maybe anything between the age of 16 and maybe 24. They're young, they're fit, they're active, they're relatively well armoured. They uh, are armed with something called a pilum, which is a spear that could be, or javelin, that would be thrown at the enemy, and then they move in with their swords and shields after, after that. The line behind them, so this is a whole other line of troops, they are called the princeps. And these are men in the absolute prime of their life, between the ages maybe of 25 and 35. They are better armoured, fairly experienced, and they are the second line that will more than likely win the battle. So the first line go in, do their job, maybe exhaust the enemy. The second line, which the princeps come in at the end, and they try and finish the day. The third line is the triari, and they are the super veterans of the Roman army. They're usually in their late 30s, maybe early 40s. They're absolute veterans and they fight in the old phalanx style. So they have the big shields and they have long spears. 
nine out of ten times they won't get involved in the battle they won't be needed they just kind of sit there as an emergency reserve line but sometimes they come in and i think what's kind of fun to note about this is there's actually a phrase across italy or a saying that's so it's come to the triari and what that means is sometimes young people really mess up and the old experienced people have to come in and save the day and it's still referred to as, oh, so it's come to the triary. <laughs> so they're not really used that often, but they're the best armored, the best equipped, the most experienced, the most calm, cool headed troops. The Romans also have their horse troops or knights, and they're referred to as equites. They are like the middle class of Rome. And the reason is the Romans have to provide uh, their own equipment for battle. So the richest people can afford horses. Therefore, the equites are very much the middle class. And then you have your usual commanders and your, you know, your general units and maybe your general's bodyguard, that kind of a thing. And almost all the times, the Romans incorporate a certain amount of mercenaries and they probably incorporate auxiliary troops. So they, maybe they have some allies involved in the situation. The Carthaginians, they're a whole other kettle of fish. They historically do not have a great army. They do have one thing going for them very well, and that is a very good apt navy and that is because they are like the child or the grandchild of the phoenicians the great naval superpower in the mediterranean so the carthaginians have a great navy and they also have elephants now when the carthaginians have elephants they do have african elephants but they are not the african elephants we think of today the ones you might see in the zoo or the sub-saharan those African elephants are larger than Indian elephants, but the ones that would have been used by the Carthaginians are a North African extinct species, and it is slightly smaller than an Indian elephant. So the Carthaginians would have used a North African elephant, and sometimes, through trade, they possibly got their hands on a subspecies of Iranian elephant, which would be a subspecies of an Indian elephant. So in summary, they did have elephants, which is awesome, but they did have smaller elephants than you would expect. Not too small, because an elephant, regardless, is still huge. You can't really compare with that. So the Carthaginians historically did not have a great army. They had a very good navy. But along came a Spartan general called Xanthippus, and he came across the Carthaginian army and was kind of brought in as a bit of a consultant or a trainer and realized that you have got a lot going. You've got great troops. You've got fantastic elephants. You have unbelievable cavalry everything is looking fantastic you just have no organization so he kind of whips them into shape and it's after that point that the carthaginians have a halfway decent land-based army before that they relied very heavily like athens on uh, having a very strong naval power so when the first punic war does break out carthage actually has a reasonable land force but they're still very much navy based rome on the other hand does not have a navy there is a funny side note that the Romans possibly developed a navy by literally finding a shipwrecked Carthaginian ship and building it from, from scratch, going, okay, this is what we have to build and imitate it. Romans, two things basically going for them. One is that they had the money to finance a brand new shiny navy. Mm. And two, as you say, they are very happy to innovate and mm. steal good ideas and abandon old ones. And the real breakthrough for mm -hmm. them was the invention of the Corvus. This was a yes. boarding device. It allowed them to board the Carthaginian ships, mm. and it basically yeah. allowed them to get naval superiority. The first usage was the Battle of Mylae in 260 BC. Okay. And uh, mm -hmm. History Machine had this about 50-50 who would win. The Romans won it handily, and they did, according to History Machine, about 25% more, dealt out about 25% more casualties 
to yes. the Carthaginian navy than expected while taking minimal casualties themselves. In terms of the of the impact this had, both in terms of the, the war, the tide of the war as a whole, and just mm-hmm. maybe even propaganda reasons, this led to the first ever naval triumph in Rome. Triumph, basically Ooh, huge wow. parade party celebration of a general. Uh, so that went to Gaius Dullius, who's the first ever like admiral, basically, to be given a triumph. Whereas on the Carthaginian side, the admiral there, after losing the battle following on from this, uh, was crucified for incompetence. So Jesus Christ! Yeah. Bit of <laughs> carrot versus stick incentives here, but uh, yeah, yeah, this basically oh it really it it was kind of the beginning of the end for Carthage when they couldn't have naval superiority anymore. Mm. There wasn't so much they could do, and with generals yes. like that, I, I mean, the the general that they had, the history machine kind of it wouldn't necessarily cruise, say crucify him, but it agrees he was highly incompetent. Uh, of all the generals we'll be discussing okay. today, Hannibal Gisco is the lowest scoring. Wins over expectation is minus 0.44. So he's, he's, he's going to lose in even odds a lot of the time. But in amongst all these, all these kind of incompetent generals, in amongst Rome's technology catching up and exceeding that of Carthage's, there was one general mm-hmm. who stood out and who was basically pioneering guerrilla warfare around Sicily. He could not be beaten himself. He could evade, he could yes. plan, and that was Hamilcar Barca. Undefeated. Undefeated. When we do talk a bit about the Carthaginians, there are several names that keep coming up. And unfortunately for us, the Carthaginians <laughs> have very few names they actually use. Everyone is just referred to as Hamilcar the whatever, or Hamilcar the second, or Hamilcar. So a few names are going to pop up are Hamilcar, and if we just say Hamilcar, we mean the father of Hannibal. If we mention Hannibal, and just leave it at that, we're talking about Hannibal who crossed the Alps with the elephants. If we talk about Mago and Hasdrubal, those are Hannibal's brothers and Hamilcar's son. If we say Hasdrubal Gisco, that's another one. (laughs) If we have any variation of those names, and we will, like... That means it's somebody else. I'm looking over my notes. We have six Carthaginian generals that I've noted to maybe talk about, and there are four first names between them. And if we added generals, we wouldn't really be expanding the number of different of first names. I think it would it would top out at those four. You got Ham- Hamilcar, Hannibal, Hasdrubal, Mago. That is just the naming system. That's all they got. They, you know, it's it's like that Monty Python sketch. Everybody's named Bruce. It's just <laughs> no, to avoid confusion, we'll all have the same names. So the Romans, on the other hand do use about the same well they use a bit more names but thankfully for us they have a triple barrel naming system so like it, for example it would be Gaius Julius Caesar so you go ah okay I know who I'm talking about there let's say Quintus Fabus Maximus you're like okay I know that one but sometimes they do have the same name and we'll explain who is who and and who is who what timeline if we do have a father son or we have a grandfather grandson that have the same name we'll we'll make them distinctive because the names can be quite confusing because really there's just a lot of repetition happening yeah so as Cahill mentioned Hamilcar this is the Hamilcar we'll be talking about father of Hannibal absolute probably tactical and strategic genius he is the only undefeated commander for the Carthaginian side 
in the First Punic War. So in summary, the First Punic War happens. We have the Battle of Agrigentum and Malaya, the twos we talked about. Hamilcar is commanding a mercenary army. Now, for the Carthaginians for the First Punic War, it turns out they're a great trading state. So what they do when it comes to their military is they have a certain amount of their own units, but they hire a lot of mercenaries. And Hamilcar is in charge of a mercenary army, and he is undefeated. And through a bit of poor diplomatic negotiations, through a bit of Carthage being put under siege, even though Hamilcar is winning all around him in Sicily, the Carthaginians do decide to capitulate, they do decide to surrender, and they do decide to agree to absolutely terrible terms, because originally... They agreed to fairly reasonable terms, but those terms were then rejected by the Romans. And by the time it came around to version two of negotiations, the Carthaginians had disbanded most of their armies and were in no position to continue the First Punic War. And this infuriated the Carthaginians, particularly Hamilcar. And it is at this point that he decides to have an absolute, complete vendetta against the Roman state, the Roman people, and anything that would be related to the Romans. Punic Wars, really, a comparison that's made a lot of the time is that they're a bit like the world wars of the last century. So you have the first one where it's two empires just building and building till they just have to clash, almost. And it ends with, it, it has high attrition, high casualties, and eventually ends with one side surrendering, even though a lot of the people, you know, back home and a lot of the leaders feel like we shouldn't have surrendered mm-hmm. yet, namely Hamilcar. And it also ends yes. with incredibly heavy uh, reparations that have to be paid out to the winning side by the losing side. Carthage have to pay a huge amount back to Rome. And it's this anger which you know kind of leads eventually to the Second Punic War in the same way that it led to the Second World War. And the Third Punic War is basically like if Japan in the 80s when they were buying up all, you know everything around the States, the US just said like, mm-hmm. no, stop that. We're wiping you out. <laughs> we, sh- we should have finished you, you know, back then. Uh, there's there's going to be no economic miracle. We're like nip that in the bud. Yeah. Um, you know that's basically the third Punic War. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, back back to Hamilcar. Back to the tail so, end of, uh, of the first Punic War. Yeah, huge reparations to be paid. And as we said, Carthage mostly relied on mercenaries, so they're not getting paid mm-hmm. now. So they decide we're going to wreck the joint until we get our money. <laughs> Uh, and Carthage, seeing that they have maybe one competent general, send him in to try and basically uh, get rid of them. Since also, And also he had a track record of taking mercenary armies and getting them very loyal to him, which is very unusual and very unique skill. So he was the man for the job at the time. So in summary, after the Punic Wars failed for Carthage, they had their mercenary armies return, look for money, and the Carthaginians sort of changed them. So just a little bit of advice in general and in life and from this podcast and from some of the data there's a couple of things you should probably take note number one do not start a land battle in asia you're not going to win that one number two pay your mercenaries Mm. because they are professional murderers and when they don't pay you they have a very unique set of skills like a Liam neeson except there's thousands of them (laughs) yeah so uh basically in in recruiting new people to fight against the old mercenaries. They paid them up front this time with what little they had left over. We have Hamilcar in action and we have a couple of his battles in the list. And Hamilcar is a very interesting general to look at in the context of the history machine because it does not know what to do with. He is so good strategically that it doesn't show up in the tactics. He gets himself into such a favorable position before he accepts battle 
that then when he wins, uh, the history machine's kind of like, well, so what? You were in a great position. Of course you were going to win that. Oh, okay. Um, you know, even though, even when he's outnumbered, he just he did incredible things. So an example of him being heavily outnumbered was the Battle of the Saw. Uh, yes. Outnumbered about five to one, he just managed to outmaneuver and basically herd the enemy army into a box canyon with no supply lines, which is like, that's probably the worst place uh, you, you can ever get ambushed is inside a box canyon. So, um, yeah, he just, he did such an incredible job setting this one up. The History Machine, like, it had him at solid favorite, even though he only had a fraction of the numbers. Um, wow. And it does see, have him as having, you know, big casualties over expectation, about, you know, 30% okay. more than exe- expected. Mm-hmm. But his wins over expectations, yeah. it's only 0.35. It's nothing huge. You know, it's solid, but it's it does think that he should have won. And then another example, then, uh, Battle of Bagradaz, uh, river here he had a fainted retreat again uh you know outmaneuvers a bigger army and here the history machine like it actually gave him a 90 percent chance to win because by the time he'd done all his maneuvering he was just in such a good position oh wow i mean it does have a bit to do with the army composition as well because the mercenary army is not necessarily going to be ranked as highly as more kind of veteran troops but um but e- e- even so like he ends up with a very kind of modest only maybe somewhat above average wins over expectation even though he never lost just because he he set things up so well he had such a great mind for strategy tactics didn't have to be as good they were good but they didn't have to be yeah that's incredible Mm. now actually i want to talk a little bit about the battle of bagradas river it does involve something called a feigned retreat so what he did is he set up his troops now no one's exactly 100% sure how he did this because there is not really enough information about it and there's kind of been some speculations and a possible hypothetical how did he lay out the troops how did he deploy them what was the situation but he was outnumbered heavily with uh, the enemy mercenary army he had his own mercenary army and he had a certain amount of elephants and cavalry so He did feign a retreat, which meant he convinced his troops to pretend to run away. And normally, at least 90% of the time, when the enemy is running away, you want to chase them. And you want to chase them because that is where you deal your casualties. That is where you kill them. That is where they're running away and their backs are against you. And you start throwing your spears and you start hurling your javelins and you start running them down and killing them all. And that's it. You've won the day. So he starts the battle by making it pretend as if the troops are freaked out and want to run away. And when they do start feigning the retreat, the enemy, the enemy mercenary army, decides to run at them, overextend. But he had this planned, so his troops stop, wheel around, are in tight-knit formation, ready to go, and they counterattack. And because they counterattack, and the other side has overexerted and has lost cohesion and formation, they cut through them. Meanwhile, no one's sure exactly how he might have done this. There's a couple of ways. He either got the elephants to retreat in between gaps in his line or he got them to retreat and whirl around the back of the line and meet the corresponding cavalry from the mercenary army and smash into them as well and the whole thing then ended up being a quick feint to a massive counter-attack and that was the way he was able to get around it so very tactically minded very strategically minded clever fellow and as you said the numbers probably don't reflect him that well because his strategy level is very high and that's not what we measure with the history machine. We measure a certain amount of your tactical ability and really how well you do under terrible pressure situations. And he's a smart enough guy not to find himself in one. In a, in a funny way, the history machine kind of rewards if you get into you know, terrible starting conditions for battle. So like, if you mess up and somehow 
just get totally pulled outnumbered. Out yeah, yeah, and but then pull yeah. out a bag. That's a bigger <laughs> reward than being sensible and just picking up, you know, nice simple victories. Oh, that's a good point. So I suppose um, to finish up with Hamilcar, he decides to move to Spain. Uh, because the Carthaginians have a colony there and he's going to expand in Spain and he's going to absorb a couple of silver mines and work there and develop a huge amount of just resources and go from there. And the Romans get really annoyed with him because they're saying, what are you doing in Spain? What are you doing expanding? Basically creating a new frontier because North Spain had a lot of Roman, not necessarily directly controlled, but kind of almost like vassal states or puppet states or whatever. Yes, definitely Roman influenced or Roman connected. And they kind of get a little bit freaked out because they're like, why are the Carthaginians expanding in Spain? And Hamilcar, in a very simple kind of response, is, well, we have to pay you a lot of money. We owe you a huge amount of reparations. So how are we meant to pay you back if we don't conquer new territories and send you cash? Like this, and the Romans kind of begrudgingly can't really yeah, argue that they're like, I suppose enough, I you guess. do have to pay yeah. us back somehow. Yeah. Another, <laughs> why another... are you robbing this bank? We need money to give to you. <laughs> I think another funny note on this as well is um, this this invasion and expansion in Spain. This wasn't authorized at all by the Carthaginian Senate. Like they they didn't know he was going to do oh, this. Yeah. But it was just so profitable that like they weren't going to tell him no. Or it was just like it was a lot of silver coming back to Carthage. So there's like, okay, carry on, I guess. Like as long as you keep making this money, like we're not gonna we're not gonna put you on trial or anything. Just like. Keep sending the silver back your grand. Hamilcar has this feeling of like the kind of the rogue cop in the drama. It's like he doesn't do what the chief tells him to do, but damn it, he gets results. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I suppose Hamilcar, he's the big name to recognize in the First Punic War. He is that equivalent. He's, he's the very important person. He is the guy who's chiefly going to be responsible for the Second Punic War. And what's more important is he has a group of children. And they are often referred to as the Lion's Brood. And in the Lion's Brood, we include Hannibal, we include Mago and Hasdrubal. And these are going to be the generals and the commanders for the Second Punic War. And I suppose now is probably one of the best times to go into it and explain what happens from here. So Hamilcar meets kind of a gruesome end in Spain. I don't think anyone's 100% sure on the circumstances, but... No one's 100% sure on how he dies in Spain, but he does die in Spain. And at this point, then, one of his relatives takes over the army. And then eventually, Hannibal, at the age of 26, takes over. He has spent his life growing up with this Carthaginian army. And they are delighted to make him the commander. But the Senate back home in Carthage is not impressed originally. There's a certain faction of it that says... Don't trust these barkas. They're they're not a cool bunch. Uh, they're way too ambitious. And there's other factions then in Carthage. They're like, no, go on. You know, why ruin a good thing? They're they're doing they're doing very well there. Maybe they should keep going. So it's at this point that Hannibal decides to start marching north. Now we have a bit of a conundrum in how to invade Rome because he's about to kick off the Second Punic War. And he can't attack by sea. Even though historically Carthage is a great naval power, they have lost that advantage because the Romans have developed a very strong navy and they use the Corvus tactic, which is like a big plank with a spike that they fire down on your ship and they run over their troops and they attack you. And they are dominating the Mediterranean at the moment. And the Carthaginians won't be able to sail a fleet there. I'd like to just put in with a side note here as well. History machine totally agrees to not go with the navy because really? consistently naval combat is wildly unpredictable 
mm-hmm. the biggest swings are nearly always naval battles. It never the history machine finds it way harder to predict. Um, there's so much more that can go wrong because you can have the bigger army and then a storm will come in and you just lose for no real reason. So um, history machine likes the idea of just ignore, ignoring naval combat because it's just too unpredictable. So um, so they can't they can't go by navy. So they decide to do something that's so out there that is so crazy it just might work and what that is is hannibal decides to get his troops and he's going to be the first person to do this he won't be the last and he will inspire a lot of people and it brings a lot of crazy imagery when you think about it he is going to march an army over the alps and he's going to be marching elephants over the alps yeah it's insane as well, it's worth noting, they're Gauls. Now, most of these hate Rome. Some of them like Rome. All of them see a big supply train coming through a normally barren mountain in, you know, in coming into winter. So they, they're going to try and rob what they can and, and fight you where they can. So it's like, even with all the elements, there's also just a lot of direct opposition from other people. So it's, it's difficult in so many different ways. Yeah, it's not even just a logistical problem. It's not a movement problem. It's not how do we get there. And there is a quote from Hannibal at this time about crossing the Alps. And it is, I will find a way or make one. And that pretty much sums up what they're going to be doing, cutting through the Alps, dealing with rival tribes, attacking them, trying to find the logistics for how we get from A to B, how we cut across it, how we avoid the steep slopes, everything, all of the problems. Now, this is such a crazy maneuver. The Romans at the time, if you have a, like a Roman map, they don't even have the Alps filled out. That's like something they just go, no, no, nothing's coming there. Because nothing can. Yeah, and if you look at Roman positioning while Hannibal's doing this, they had sent one army towards Spain to try and intercept him, which missed mm-hmm. him. Um, they had one army down in Sicily, which were ready either to repel a naval invasion or launch a naval invasion of Carthage themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they had one army, which is just all like raw recruits who were basically just in training. And they were up in North Italy because... That was a nice, safe place to train up and get better and, like, you know, just just basically get ready in case they're needed as reserves. But they weren't, they weren't like, a strong force. They were the weakest bunch they had. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Eventually, Hannibal crosses the Alps and he lands in northern Italy. And I suppose this is a great time to talk about one of his first battles. Uh, and this would be between Hannibal and the Romans. And this will be the battle, the Trebia. First big large-scale battle between them. That wasn't just a bit of a skirmish. Uh, first large-scale battle following the Alpine crossing. Relatively even-sized battles, and Hannibal just smashed them. And it's also, it's another example, again, of political weirdness getting in there, because the Roman politicians were also all generals, essentially. I want them really wanted to get elected. So he rushed up to fight Hannibal as soon as possible, even though it was winter when they normally don't fight, even though he had... The really inexperienced army mm-hmm. he just thought like no we'll take him i'll beat him and then i'll get elected because <laughs> i'll be the big hero oh my god yeah fair enough so i suppose um i might explain a little bit about the roman political system so at the time you have different forms of government we have already talked about democracy with the athenians we've talked about monarchies and diarchies with the spartans most governments tend to follow uh we have a king we have maybe a couple of lords and some other people and noblemen and then we have the general peasantry The Romans are a big exception to that rule. They have a very large ruling class that are constantly bickering with each other and running for election, trying to become the heads of state. 
And the Romans have two heads of state and they refer to them as consuls. And every year they're elected. Uh, every year they elect two of them. And the idea is these are the two most powerful people in Rome. Underneath it then they have various other political stations. But it's the two consuls that are the very big important roles in Rome. And because it's a giant game of King of the Castle, and because it's a giant game of political machinations, they'll almost always be guaranteed to have a very competent person, or two very competent people, in charge. And because they have such frequent elections, this tends to get Romans to want to be very aggressive all the time. Now, they expanded because they were aggressive. There's a statement that the Romans conquered the world in self-defense. Because every time they'd come to their borders to say, we have a... Oh, we have an enemy right here, and what's you know they they could be a big threat to us. What do we do? We conquer them, and then suddenly after you conquer them, you got a, an enemy slightly more further away, and you're like, okay, what do we do? We'll conquer them, and you just move on and on. So they're incredibly aggressive. They're very short terms. People are very politically ambitious. Uh, it is a society that is rife with ambition, and when you find yourself as a consul or somebody in charge of a consular army. You are very eager to use it because you want to have names and triumphs and rewards and you want to be remembered and you want to bring glory to your family. So you'll see that constantly with the Romans at this time period. They are very eager on getting into battles. They are very arrogant. They are very well resourced and they just want to win. And they want to have the awards, they want to have the glory, they want to have the honour. They are all about this kind of stereotypical, brute, aggressive Roman. And the Trebia is a perfect example of that backfiring. Because Hannibal, he was just in off the Alps. He, it was the middle of winter. Mm -hmm. He should have been wrecked. Instead, the Romans had a massive forced march up there, which exhausted them too. He got them up first thing in the morning, had them cross a freezing river. Yeah. Um, so they were exhausted. They hadn't eaten. Whereas Hannibal's army, like they'd scouted in advance, they'd gone like, this spot here that we're going to try and lure them into, this is perfect for yeah. our cavalry, which they had more of. He made yes. sure his army was well fed. They had fires going all day. They were basically burning through resources because they just knew they had to win this battle. Yes. But um, the end result, massive, like the Roman army almost totally wiped out. The The history machine gave Hannibal a 25% chance to win oh, this wow. battle given the circumstances. Okay. So, and he hammered them. He did 40% more casualties than expected. Mm. Um, took about 10% fewer casualties than he should have. All in all, yeah, the Trebia was a disaster for Rome and really announced the presence of Hannibal and let Rome know this is someone special here. This isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a return of uh, people like Hannibal Gisco, you know, the, in the first meeting war. Yes. This is the son of Hamilcar. This is the one you needed to worry about. Yeah. And he's up here in northern Italy and he's calling us a huge amount of issues and trouble. So the Battle of the Trebia then... That seems to have caused them a huge amount of problems. The Romans kind of realise, okay, we do have a very powerful army up north. And I suppose this will lead directly into the Battle of Lake Trasimene. A funny fact about this, it is, to date, the largest ambush ever. Most amount of men involved. There is no World War I battle. There is no World War II battle. There is no Napoleonic era. No, nothing from, from anything after this time. This is the largest singular ambush in history. The number of men involved in it is staggering. And what it is, is there is a long train of Roman soldiers getting ready for a battle in a foggy morning coming near a high hillside that is hiding tens of thousands of Carthaginians. And there is a lake to their other side and it is then that they get ambushed by Hannibal. 
Wins over expectation. In this one, because it was an ambush and everything and the terrain was on their yes. side, uh, this one did expect Hannibal to win. Okay. It gave him about 75% chance to win this one. But casualties dealt over expectation was 85% higher mm-hmm. than expected. Mm-hmm. Hannibal absolutely wiped them out and also killed the commanders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, which wasn't expected at all by the history machine. So this is, again, just like, you know, maybe this time he was going to win it because he set up so well. He The terrain was perfect, again, you know, just right between a lake and a very steep hill. But the execution was even better just to do the damage that they did, mm-hmm. even given that was totally beyond um oh wow so it just wasn't expected at all yeah so the romans went into this with about thirty thousand men mm-hmm. versus hannibal's fifty-five thousand. Yes. hannibal's side lost maybe one and a half to two thousand the romans lost either died or were captured pretty much all of them mm-hmm. practically all of them <laughs> like it's it was just a bloodbath so i suppose it was after these two battles that we need to talk about Possibly the Roman who's going to save the day. Or at least stop them from losing until they get someone who can save the day, if nothing else. So, Hannibal is after coming into Italy. He is after winning uh, the Trebia and Lake Trasimene. He has caused Rome to lose two large armies. Now, this is kind of a strange thing that really sets apart Carthage and Rome from other competitors. Hypothetically, Cahill, if you and I were living in the ancient world and one of us was a chieftain of some village, in other words, a king of another small kingdom, we can probably pull together a couple of thousand men or maybe a few 10,000 men, 20,000, whatever the number is. We can pull together our units, but we cannot afford to lose a battle. If we lose a battle, that's probably it. We'll come together, we'll have a battle, I might lose it, and then suddenly I'm suing for peace and that's it, and you've annexed my territory and it's all over. The difference between the Romans and the difference between the Romans and the Carthaginians compared to everybody else is they can take a hit they are able to lose tens of thousands of men and keep coming back because they can say we lost that battle but we can come back again later we lost that one we still have the manpower and that's that's really what makes the punic war so significant is because like there was no one else like this at the time yes around the the region whoever was going to win this there was a really good chance they would go on to conquer most of the mediterranean yeah pretty much as long as like the thing you know political shenanigans didn't wreck things like mm. they had the capability to do to do so and i mean it did happen with rome this is why it's so important that both of these are really two countries who are just like ready to become massive empires at this stage and have huge resources of both manpower and wealth wow so after these two battles hannibal is dominating the romans they really want to strike them back and just win. They have, really, their pride is at stake at this point. There are a lot of Romans who think, this is it, you just need to have another big army, send it at Hannibal, take him out. But there's one person who really saves the day here, and his name is Fabian. And Fabian gets a nickname that sums him up very well. He's the Delayer. And what Fabian is involved with is he decides, let's not engage Hannibal. We're in the middle of the Second Punic Wars, we're in the middle of this big engagement, we have a very powerful strategic commander in charge of a very powerful army up north that's only getting bigger with time it's it's absorbing more celts it's gaining more support and every time we engage it even with bigger numbers we just get annihilated it's it's an absolute crushing we do not want to engage this man at any time so what we'll do is we'll pick off some smaller forces left right and center we do not engage hannibal we do not meet him on his terms we'll pick the battleground 
we will work around it. We can't engage him. And this infuriated the Romans because they just say, well, you're a bit of a coward, aren't you, Fabian? Why don't you just... Uh, we just go in there and win the day. If, if we wanted to go with, like, the tried and true boxing analogies, yes. all the other generals, they wanted a first-round knockout. Yes. Fabian was going to try and win on points. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> he was going to try and outbox him. And, and everyone else, all the other Roman politicians were just like, but that's boring. Yeah, come on, knock him out. Knock him out. Do, <laughs> Do it. it. Knock him out. <laughs> what, are, what are we wasting time? <laughs> knock him out. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so... But it, it worked like, Han, yeah. you know, Hannibal just, he couldn't do any real damage. He, was, he wasn't he was defeated, but he was contained. He was just kind yes. of moving yeah. around, um, mm. just, you know, kind of scavenging. But yeah. like, yeah, couldn't really do much. His supply lines were kind of getting chipped away at the mm. whole time. Very and true. He was just a bit stuck yeah. as, as long as Fabian mm. was in, in power. And this style of warfare is often referred to as a Fabian strategy. And it's the idea of you don't engage the enemy, you don't give them any kind of terms you let them bleed themselves dry in terms of logistics and i think there's a fun side note to mention here about it hannibal was like how do i get around this thing he just won't engage me so he came up with a novel idea to destroy as much italian property as possible but leave everything that was owned by fabian alone (laughs) and he'd kind of spread the rumor that maybe fabian was in cahoots with hannibal and of course that absolutely infuriated and startled the romans who kind of go wait a second is this strategy working or is he in cahoots with hannibal he's just just, hannibal go on go on hannibal had picked out what we've what we've commented on that the roman politics were yes you know could very well undo the entire roman empire before it got going (laughs) Yeah, yeah Um, um, because they, yes. yeah, it was it was a pretty ingenious move. Very but, much so. Um, very much so. Fabian, Fabian, before we move away from him in the next section, just the history machines points on him. The only thing is with his strategy, and this kind of maybe highlights why the Romans got so frustrated with him. Yes. When you don't take any big battles, when you don't take any risks, mm-hmm. there's very little reward usually as well. And the history machine has him ranked as of any general with three or more battles, he is the second most average in the entire database. He, every every single ranking, wins over expectations, casualties suffered, casualties dealt, commander kills suffered, commander kills dealt, everything is close to zero. He had three battles in the database, he won one, drew one, lost one. He is almost perfectly average because he just never took any chances whatsoever. Oh, wow. Never kind of over or underperformed. He just, yeah. he stayed the course. He delayed. He delayed. Um, and the history machine reflects that, oh, which wow. I think is interesting. That is One fantastic. of the most average generals of all time. <laughs> yeah. But again, it was it was a solid strategy as long yes. as the Romans were willing to stick with it. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, but they, they weren't. weren't quite. Nope, nope. So the Romans, after all of this scenario, they were not happy at all with this Fabian strategy, this delaying, even though it was chipping away at Hannibal and was causing him a lot of problems. They're like, what we got to do is raise a crazy army, smash it straight into Hannibal and ruin his day and end this whole thing. Send him home, put some heavy treaties onto the Carthaginians again, make sure they're screwed forever. That's what we're going to do. And this leads very nicely into probably one of, if not the most famous battles in history. And this battle is an absolute masterpiece. And we'll go a little bit into it in a moment. But to set it up, it does involve a double consular army. So that's two consuls, both bringing an army together. They are going to have 80,000 men in one area 
ready to take on Hannibal and end this total problem. And this is the Battle of Kinney. And when we talk about this, it is such a strange, crazy, hypothetical dream scenario that this particular battle has obsessed commanders, generals, tacticians, strategists forever. And to explain it, it is where Hannibal, quite simply, with less men, fully envelops in circles and annihilates a bigger, more powerful force. That is the Battle of Cannae. So the Romans have a double consular army. They're going to bring 80,000 men to the battlefield. They are ready to destroy Hannibal. They are ready to end this. They're ready to have a lot of triumphs, huge celebrations. This is going to be it. This is a mass super machine of troops ready to go. Meanwhile, the Carthaginians deploy their force in an inverse crescent shape. So kind of like a semicircle in shape where the weakest troops are in the center, slightly stronger troops are on the edge and they put the cavalry, which are the horses, right on the outside. Now, this is probably an important fact to note. The Carthaginians throughout most of this Punic Wars pretty much have better cavalry than the Romans because they have cavalry from North Africa. They're faster, they're lighter, they're skirmish cavalry. They come close to you and they fire some javelins and they right out of there again into safety. But they're much better. They're very well trained. They're very powerful. So Hannibal almost always has fantastic cavalry. And he uses that to his advantage. And you'll find later, when he doesn't have good cavalry with him, that's really the downside. So with Cana he does. And he has the cavalry set up and he has this crescent bow with the weak troops in the centre. Now the Romans have a very clear textbook. What they want to do is they're going to form their troops into a battering ram and smash through the Carthaginians, break that line... Then they're going to turn around, wheel about and envelop them and that would be it. And they were going to cut through them, pull them down, destroy, the, win the day, that would be it. Now, Hannibal himself is in the centre line with the weaker, with the less equipped troops, the regular ones. He wants to explain to them very much that you are part of this plan. So the invert crescent bow that the Romans are about to smash in, they steadily give up ground and they move back. But the wings on the side, the very tips of that crescent bow, they stay still. And then suddenly the bow gets straighter and straighter. And now it's a straight line. And the Romans are still punching through. And it makes sense because in Roman warfare, just march forward, punch through, cut through the enemy. What are we doing? We're going forward. And Hannibal's made it as enticing as possible by sticking the weak troops front and center. Front and center. Like literally front and center. Literally so. front and center. And they're gradually pulling back. He has made it look to the Romans. This is an ideal scenario. And it keeps going and it keeps going. And instead of breaking, instead of breaking like a board, it wraps around them like an elastic band. And they keep pushing and pushing and pushing, but it, the elastic just keeps going and it keeps stretching. And suddenly that crescent bow that was jotting out, presenting the middle to the Romans, is now an inverse of itself. Meanwhile, the Carthaginian cavalry has engaged and defeated the Roman cavalry. They wheel around and they encircle the Romans and suddenly... That relentless Roman march that was punching through the centre, or at least trying to punch through the centre, unsuccessfully, finds to its right and its left some very heavily armoured Carthaginians. In the centre, in the middle, they find that that line is unbroken, and behind them, they are caught with the cavalry. And suddenly, this huge, double-whammy, fantastic 80,000-men consular army finds itself enveloped, wrapped around 
totally encircled and is now waiting to die. And this thing is so unbelievably expected and so out there, it has just captured the minds of strategists and tacticians and generals throughout history ever since. People have been trying to imitate this forever. This is this is the masterpiece. This is the way to win a battle. How do you win a battle? Well, you envelop the enemy. How do you how do you do that? Well, you can do it by doing this. It it is just the strategy of annihilation. You just completely destroy the enemy and leave nothing left. Yeah, and the history machi- machine backs this up as annihilation because this has of any battle in the entire database, not just the ones we're talking about today. This has the highest casualties dealt above expectation of any battle. Um, about ninety-five percent more casualties dealt than expected. Oh, wow! Uh, in a battle that in a battle that Hannibal was given less than twenty-five percent chance to win in the first place. Not only did he win, he dealt out ninety-five percent more casualties than expected. It agrees with the with the historians. The, the history machine back backs up all the pomp, all the hype, all the legacy of this battle. It it really has it stand out as one of the most unusual, I suppose, of all time. So yeah, so this is the tactical masterpiece of Hannibal. This is what makes him. If we want to be honest about it, this is why he's remembered. There's a lot of things of like, well, he marched the elephants over the Alps. He he did X, Y, and Z. He was a pawn in the side of the Romans. But it's really after the Battle of Cannae that history is sitting on a razor's edge because the Romans have lost three large armies in less than three years. They should, by all means, want to sue for peace right now. They cannot beat Hannibal they cannot beat him in the open battlefield it cannot happen there is no way around it even they outnumber him whatever it doesn't matter he, he will just win and it is at this point in Roman history that there is absolute utter panic they don't know what to do they're thinking Rome is under threat this is this is it this is the end this is everything and it is at this point in history that Hannibal decides to do something that a lot of people will critique him now and they critiqued him at the time And it was, he decides, I will not march on Rome. I will not finish this. I will not follow up. A bit of a a running theme is like how Hannibal's ability ages. At this point, this is, we are currently at peak Hannibal. He's had eight battles. The history machine currently has him at 0.44 wins above expectation on average. So like if you're in a battle with one in 20 chance of winning, he'll probably win that half the time. He's really stand out. He's one of the top all time ever if he stopped here. And in terms of casualties, he deals out about 50% more casualties than expected. He will kill your general 20% more often than you would expect. He takes very few casualties. Like he is standing out as best of all time, probably like top three. But it's what happens from here now. That is all pretty much downhill. Yeah, it seems like everything should be on top for Carthage. But, you know, we, we've all heard the Roman Empire. Most European languages are Latin-based. Carthage, we're not even 100% sure necessarily where the original runes were. So what happened? Yeah, what did happen? Because Rome win this. Rome do come out and actually win this war. You're like, hold on a second now. They lost how many people? Lake Trasimene, Cannae, and like the Trivia. It's like, what happened? And it's all falling apart. And they haven't won in Italy and their allies are currently leaving them. I suppose this is probably an important time to also mention Hannibal's strategy. Didn't work, but Hannibal's strategy at the time was to decide that the Romans had recently united Italy. They had conquered it, taken it over, annexed parts of it, made kind of leagues and and treaties and allies. And some of them were a bit grumbly allies. They didn't really, they weren't too happy under the Roman umbrella. And his goal was to have these Italian states break apart 
form their own principalities and kingdoms and governments again and put Rome back a couple of hundred years. Just kind of say, you're back now in your position. You control this part of Italy. You have a lot of political rivals in here. You're not going to be taking over and we're going to return Carthage to a bit of its former glory. So his strategy was that and it kind of worked. But if you can't beat Hannibal in Italy, that was the, the Fabian idea. Don't, don't engage him. Don't even bother fight him. Don't get involved. So it is really in Spain. The Romans aren't actually winning everywhere, but they do start to make some wins in Spain. There, there is effectively Roman armies in Spain at this time. They're going to, to beat the Carthaginians, but they don't start off too well. And that kind of leads us into the battle of the Upper Betis. And that involves Hasdrubal and Mago, who are brothers of Hannibal. They are effectively sons as well of Hamilcar. They are going to defeat a particular Roman general. And his name is going to come up, Scipio. And we'll refer to this one as Scipio the Elder. Because there's going to be three levels of Scipio. So, Cahal, if you want to talk a bit about it. Rome knew that they couldn't win at home, weirdly. So they had to go kind of to Carthage's home ground. And this was their first real major attempt at that. This is kind of two battles that were combined into one. In summary, History Machine, it had it 50-50. It was a very, very close run thing. But Hasdrubal and Mago, you know, they did a really good job in this one. Casualties dealt 32% more than expected. They took 8% fewer than expected. And also, in the process, they killed the Roman generals of uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio, Scipio the Elder, yes. and uh, Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio. Yeah, as we said, like it's it's a good thing for Rome that they were at the stage where they could take these massive defeats and keep coming back, because this was really, at the time, their grand scheme mm. to take back the war and take over Spain, yep. and it just fell flat. It was just crushed before it could really get going yes. here. But in a way, long-term it backfired, because that death of Scipio the Elder, it fueled one of his sons really to seek revenge and to seek war in Spain specifically to get back at Mago. Right. So I suppose that will lead nicely into Scipio Jr. We'll refer to him as Scipio Africanus. This is eventually the title he will earn. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he will start the Battle of Illipa. So yeah, Scipio, who was incredibly young at the time, should not have been considered ready for a major Mm -hmm. command. But he asked, like, can I command the army in Spain? And Rome was like, listen, we tried that already. It was a disaster. It's your death wish, kid. No one else is asking for this job. So you can go ahead and do what you like there. Because, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no one else stepped up. Like, we, we don't need to, like, lose any more big name politicians to this <laughs> war. You can go, go nuts. The Scipios are the important family of the Romans because Scipio the Elder would be the one who gets involved in the First Punic War and part of the Second. It is his son, Scipio Africanus, who will end the Second Punic War, and it will be the grandson, also named Scipio, who will finally end Carthage. And this is where the Scipios make their name. They make their name and they make their reputation in Spain. And Scipio was very unusual. As Cahill mentioned, he gets this young placement of command. He's too young, really, to command troops. But he's given the job because no one else wants it. But he's also given the job because really the Romans have lost a lot of nobility. They don't have that many good leaders leaders knocking around anymore because most of them are dead because most of them have been killed by Hannibal. So so it really, it opens it up. Scipio really has the opportunity of a lifetime. Now as a side note, the Romans later in history are very anxious about giving power to anybody under the age of 30. This is like, who wants to be the general? Who wants to be the commander? Who wants to be the emperor of Rome? If you're under 30, it's almost never a good idea. 
And the only exception that proves the rule is Scipio Africanus. They kind of say, he is the one exception of give a young person a lot of power, he'll do a great job. No one else can do it. He is the exception that proves the rule. And it's because he's so young and because he gets himself an army and veteranizes it really quickly and then starts doing something very strange that's very un-Roman at the time. He starts experimenting. He starts deploying his troops differently. He starts going, maybe I won't use this triple line system. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll deploy them this way. Maybe I'll move my troops into a different formation. Perhaps I'll, I'll get the third line and pull them up to the front. There's all of these strange innovations and changes that he can only kind of do on the fly for two reasons. The first is he's quickly tried to make his army more experienced. And also he is learning heavily from the Carthaginians what they do, how they do it, and how they play warfare. And he's using that to his advantage. And you can't find other Roman commanders at the time who will do it. That is somewhat connected to the Battle of Ilipa. And Cahal, I'll let you talk about it here. So the Battle of Ilipa, this was him coming in attacking Mago and Hasdrubal Gisco, another important Carthaginian family. So Scipio, there, there, you, might, you might hear a few familiar things when I call out this, this, uh, some of the details of this battle. Scipio had a much smaller army, about 50,000, mm -hmm. compared to the Carthaginian army, which was maybe 75,000. Yes. But uh, he did have good cavalry. Okay. He put his weaker troops and kind of skirmishers down the middle, and the solid Roman infantry on the sides, and then uh, the cavalry even further out. <laughs> Where's this going? Yeah. And and then on the on the Carthaginian side, you know, they, they weren't expecting battles, so they were... They hadn't eaten yet. They weren't quite ready. And uh, also, they were expecting, you know, they, they had previously won in Upper Betas, so they kind of knew what to expect from Roman mm -hmm. army. But in comes this totally different formation. They were not ready to change how they were going to fight it. They couldn't reform yes. really quickly. This battle now, like, because the composition history machine gave it about 50-50. Right. You know, because I, I suppose superior cavalry counts it for does. a bit more, even though they were outnumbered. But the casualties dealt over expectation mm -hmm. were 71% higher than expected and this basically takes Carthage out of Spain entirely mm. like they it, apparently according to like legend or whatever the casualties would have actually been like Cane levels except the weather kind of turned and they couldn't keep fighting which allowed a portion of the Carthaginian army to desert this was huge and suddenly Carthage they've gone from being on top of the world you know they have the mm. best general in the world probably they are winning all around them like they can't seem to knock Rome out but like they're under mm. no threat suddenly they've lost Spain which is the main source of their income and the main source of a huge portion of their armies also now there's this new guy to worry about whose dad they killed and uh, is coming for revenge meanwhile while Scipio is taking names and destroying armies and taking over Spain what is Hannibal doing in Italy you might ask and the Romans are just they're not engaging him a couple of the city-states are actually breaking away from Rome. They've decided, no, we're not going to be part of the Roman thing anymore. We're, we're, we're away from them. And Rome comes up with a new strategy. They come up with a strategy to deal with Hannibal. And that strategy is similar to the Fabian idea. We shall not engage him. He's got this huge, unbeatable army. And even if we pull together more numbers, we won't be able to beat him. So we'll just make loads and loads of small armies. And we will deploy them all across the country. And whenever somebody rises up or joins with Hannibal... We need to effectively find and defeat every army that isn't run by somebody called Hannibal. This is this is what we're going to do. So they just pretty much get smaller armies, smaller legions, smaller groups, break them apart, disperse them across Italy, 
And every time the Carthaginians pop their head up and it's not led by this big army controlled by Hannibal, they smash it down. And every time Hannibal shows up, they get out of there. They're like, okay, not getting involved. And this just goes on. And Hannibal is going from place to place trying to defend his allies and trying to attack the Romans and trying to take things over. And it's just not working. And the Romans are pretty much going, well, just we won't engage you and we'll bleed you dry because this is our country and we have our resources here and the Carthaginians who are meant to be sending you over some resources, they've kind of abandoned you to a certain extent and you've lost Spain. So you don't have any of that resource anymore. And now you find yourself in a terrible situation. And it is at this point that I suppose we're going to have a big turning point in history. The Romans decide to stick it to the Carthaginians and they are going to invade Carthage. They are going to invade North Africa and they are going to attack Carthage itself. And after nearly 20 years in Italy, Hannibal is called home. And his last 20 years of his life, his whole military career, the whole goal to end Rome, to destroy it, to to stick to some blood promises he's made to his father and always to be an enemy of Rome... He's got to come home and defend the Carthaginians because they cannot defend themselves. And this nicely leads into the Battle of Zama. Now, to talk about the Battle of Zama, it's a rare occasion where two commanders before the battle actually get to talk to each other. And this is recorded by a few Roman historians. Uh, Livy is one of them. They do mention pretty much that the two do meet with a few translators. They have a bit of a conversation. And I'm going to summarise it with a couple of bullet points just to kind of say what happens. So at this point, there's about a 35-year-old Scipio, a 45-year-old Hannibal. I'm kind of roughing the ages here. Not not exact. But they meet uh, halfway between their two camps uh, with a small unit force each. And they decide they're going to have a little bit of a talk before the battle commences. And Hannibal and Scipio both do not talk to each other for a long time. They just stay in silence. It's possibly a mixture of awe. Maybe it's just they're sussing each other out. And Hannibal's the first to talk. Pretty much says to Scipio, listen, I'm a bit of an older man. You kind of have luck on your side. But you have luck on your side because you're young and you're indestructible. And that's what youth does to you. He says, but listen, I'm the guy who had the huge battle at Cannae. I'm the victor. I'm the guy who put, you know, Rome's back against the wall. And they were knocked down three times in a boxing match. I really had them destroyed. I had you ended and I had this fantastic career and now it's all over and now it's being kind of betrayed. He says, you know, what you can do right now is the Carthaginians have offered you peace, but you won't take it. But I'm going to offer you peace right now and you can take it from me because I'm a much more respectable name. Fortune is on your side. Luck is on your side. The Carthaginians and the Romans believed uh, that like it was like a physical entity you could have. But the luck of youth is on your side, but that will fade away. And you will become like me and you will have the failures like me and the glory of youth will, will shatter eventually. And Scipio kind of returns with or a reply that is, well, were you suing for peace when you were in Italy? You're only suing for peace now when you have to come home. You're only suing for peace now when you've lost Spain. You're only suing for peace now because luck is on my side and I am young and I am indestructible and I am the next big thing. I am your nemesis. They kind of agree that this is it. We shall have battle in the morning and we'll see what happens. So when we talk about Zama... History Machine, even though Hannibal was despondent and he was maybe leading a less experienced army, it still gave him 50-50 okay. chance. It gave both sides about 50-50 chance. So this is even... Just to add to the, the tension where you have these two, two of the greatest generals ever, multi-generational 
feud between both countries and families. You know, Hannibal has a slightly larger army, but uh, Scipio has a bit more cavalry, which is significant, because that's not something Hannibal's used to, is having less cavalry. It, it's set up for very, very even odds. The end result, however, Scipio won the battle and dealt out 85% more casualties than expected. Scipio's side, they lost maybe four to 5,000 out of about 35,000. Hannibal lost basically the whole army. A disaster. It was totally like, un even though Hannibal had had a couple of losses by this stage, like this was, you know, and maybe the odd kind of inconclusive draw, this was the first time he ever really got crushed in battle. This battle ended the, Pu the Second Punic War. This was it, they had Carthage had nothing left at this stage. They had they had no more armies, and most importantly, they had no more Hannibal. He was in exile after this. Well, I suppose um, after this battle, and he does lose, and it's unexpected. And if I talk a little bit about the details of it, there's no major great strategy from Hannibal in this. There's no Cannae plan. There's no Trebia plan. He seems to have dulled with time and dulled with age. And maybe that's a common theme among the Barkas, this family that he's from, they seem to be fantastic in their youth. And eventually they get a bit maybe sluggish or a little bit kind of disillusioned maybe. I don't know what it is. And I I think it's worth noting as well, like we've we've already established Scipio definitely learned from Hannibal. He he copied like his better tactics. You know, Hannibal couldn't learn from Scipio because Hannibal was the older one. And I think all the all the great ideas Hamil, Hannibal or even Hamilcar before him hadn't passed on, all the great ideas they had they were pretty much used up. They had nothing fresh. Scipio knew everything that Hannibal had done before. He knew exactly what was in his game plan, and he had planned how he was going to adapt for it. Hannibal had no such counter. For example, Hannibal decided for this battle that he would start by charging in the elephants. And Scipio, kind of predicting this was going to happen, had gaps prepared in his lines and let it open up and had the elephants funnel through them and then kill them. And that was, well, we've just dealt with your elephants. It was very kind of, I know your strategies, I know your tactics, I know your tricks, I know your, I know your ideas. And I've as you've mentioned, I've learned from you, but you have not learned from me. And I am just developing a hard counter to what you normally do. And this is the battle that makes it. And this is the reputation that makes the Scipio and the Scipio family. They are now the family that, and the group and the commanders, the generals, that Rome finally has somebody who has defeated Hannibal. And after this, the Carthaginians, like the first one, like World War II, they sue for peace. This is it. It's all over. And from here, Hannibal becomes a senator for a while. He's not a great senator, but he has a certain amount of, you know, power and and influence and a decent reputation. He spent his whole life working in the military and being part of the military complex. The Italians kind of see him and say, he's getting a little bit too uppity, isn't he? And the, some Carthaginians in the opposing political factions are, he is getting a bit too uppity. And that is when Hannibal does flee to exile. And he decides to move east and head towards the Seleucid area. And there he will remain kind of jumping, running away from Rome every now and then. And trying to kind of evade them and evade their agents. Now, this is a great time to bring up a fun little meetup. It turns out that after the Battle of Zama, a little bit later in history, we find that Scipio, who is now Scipio Africanus, he's had his triumph, he's the man of his generation, the fantastic, the, the head of Roman state, possibly one of the greatest commanders Rome has ever produced. I'm sure we can look into that and, and, and verify those numbers. 
But he is the man of his generation. He travels east to visit a court and he finds himself in an unusual position of actually having dinner with Hannibal. And uh, they're meeting there in this court and they decide, you know what we'll do? Kind of like two ageing boxers or two, uh, two sports analysts or two retired athletes. Scipio wants to kind of say to Hannibal, you know what? Who's the greatest of all time? Who would you reckon is like the best commander? And they're like sitting down and they're going to debate and talk about it. Basically, they're coming up with this idea for a podcast before we before did. we ever did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so they both agree that the absolute best person is Alexander the Great. They say he never lost a battle. He conquered all that territory. He ended Persia. He is probably the best. And they said that's very reasonable. Number two, then Scipio kind of goes, "I wonder who that could be." And Hannibal makes an excellent point, according to Scipio, and that is Ferus of Epirus. Ferus, he was a Macedonian Greek commander. He is a blood relative of Alexander the Great. And he had loads of victories against the Romans on Roman soil. He kind of didn't win outright, but because he had so many victories against the Romans, I'd probably rank him number two. Scipio says, I suppose. Both of them, for their own ego, they want to believe that Rome is hardest to Yeah, very much so. So they both agree, I suppose he's the second. And then Scipio gets a little bit uppity and is like, all right. This is it. This is the one. Who's number three? And Hannibal says, it's probably me then. And Scipio, in a certain amount of Roman arrogance and a little bit of disbelief, is kind of like, well, hold on a second. I've beaten you in a battle. Uh, Where would you rank yourself if you'd actually beaten me? As in, I should have third slot. I've actually beaten you. And Hannibal replies with, should I have beaten you? I would put myself first on that list. So... It really cools. It really cools the uh, the ego of Scipio, the man who is kind of having a lot of his triumphs and parades, and is the man of his generation and considers himself the best person ever, or possibly the best commander alive. That Hannibal really sticks it to him in a sense of, should I have actually beaten you on that coin flip in the Battle of Zam- Zama, then you know what? I'd be the best ever. That's just what it would be, because no one would have beaten, no Roman commander would have beaten me. That's it. So with that in mind, uh, do you want to actually run through, according to our database and our neural network, what we would reckon at this time that top three list would be? So the history machine, with the limitations that its generals only up to this point in history, its generals that they could have theoretically known about, so nothing in East Asia or anything like that. And as well, just, just to avoid getting like total kind of random noise, Minimum okay. three battles. Yes. So number three, they oh, have Alexander okay. the Great, which uh, is interesting. He's uh, It's, again, boxing analogies, a bit like maybe a Floyd Mayweather or something where it's like, yeah, he never lost, but he didn't have the great rival yes. that the others had. He didn't have the, the really tough, tough fight that would give him a massive ranking. He, he took a lot of, like, he took a lot of kind of mid to low risk battles, so his his wins over expectation couldn't get that crazy because he never had a massively low okay. expectation in battle. Yeah. Number two, it has Scipio. Oh. So Scipio, he's right to have a high opinion of himself. Um, the overall rating, average wins over expectation, 0.55, uh, which is very high. Average casualties dealt is about 57% wow. above expectation. On average. So like on average. That's not even, yeah. that's not even a good day. That's yeah. <laughs> so Whoa. he is And our number one. Number one, you may recognize him if you've been listening to earlier episodes, Themistocles. 
Wow. He's actually, in terms of just purely wins over expectation, if you did it by casualties or something, yes. you'd get different results. So but purely just purely on, like, did, did they, they win, win? Did they win unexpectedly? Yeah, did they win against the odds? Themistocles, number one. Now, interestingly, where does Hannibal come into this? Hannibal, at the end of his career, he had 23 battles in the database, 16 wins. Uh, or, like, you know, combined, like, wins, draws, you know, bring up to a score of 16. Uh, average wins over expectation was only 0.12. Like, it was it was good, but okay. it wasn't great. His average casualties was good. It was yep. 30% higher. If Hannibal had stopped at Cane, he would have been first in wins over expectation by a solid uh, 0.1. You know, so in other words, like, you know, he, just way ahead of the pack if he had stopped even earlier still Jesus, so yeah. his wins over expectation for if you combine every battle that happened after Kane and ignore his early work minus 0. 0.05 so like it's actually you know slight average to slightly negative result oh wow yeah you see him you see him just dip so rapidly with age and after Kane. number one all time to slightly below average by the end Hypothetically, he had just stopped in his youth. He would be number one. But he didn't. And if he had even stopped kind of halfway through, he would have been probably, you know, second or third. He just had to keep going. Again, like, we do have the limitations. Like, C Caesar hasn't happened yes. yet, for example. So, you know, there are some big names yet to come. But up to this point in this region... Themistocles? Yeah, Themistocles well, did fair a great play job. To him. Yeah. Fair play to him. Fantastic. So I suppose, after all of that... How it ends is kind of kind of quite sad and poor for our Hannibal and our Scipio. Both of them will kind of die in exile and disgrace to a certain extent. Scipio will get involved in politics. Won't go well for him. His brother will be accused of political manhandling and, uh, let's say, corruption. And Scipio Africanus will be so furious about this, he will put himself into exile. And he will die outside of Italy and that will be kind of be the end of him. And his, and his counterpart Hannibal will eventually be chased by Romans across the east, will be caught up by them, and decides to commit suicide with poison at the age of sixty-five. He had one last battle as well, post Sama, which was we mentioned the um, Seleucids, which, and we also mentioned earlier, don't get involved in those uh, yes. naval battles because they're too Very unpredictable. And here we go. It had a, he had a 50-50 chance. He lost. He mm. lost about 20% more casualties than he should have. Um, Battle of the Eurymedon. Just it was just a, it was you know it was just like you know the old box coming out of retirement and then being reminded why he retired. It was just it was messy. It was ugly. It was anticlimactic, and again just kind of mm. further tarnished his reputation, yeah. which was already pretty bad at that wow. stage really the second punic war has ended after that it's it's really wrapped away and um the romans have put some fairly harsh reparations on the carthaginians at this point they have them pay back an outlandish amount of money and this is where things get a little bit strange this is where your earlier analogy about like a world war ii a japan coming with an economic boom the carthaginians when they don't have to focus on war anymore and they're put under a lot of strain by the by the Romans. They don't have to worry about war anymore because they're like, okay, we're under the Roman thumb. They just focus really heavy on trade, really heavy on economics, and uh, they have 50 years of reparations to pay to the Romans. And 10 years later, they come back and say, well, listen, we have all that money ready to pay you right now if you want it. And the Romans are both alarmed and kind of 
furious. They're like, how did you get that much money that quickly? <laughs> Where are you stashing the rest of it? And they say no. And to kind of prove a point, they explain to them that um, you will pay this back every year for the 50 years just to remind you what happened. So after this happens, <laughs> there is a very influential Roman senator named Cato the Elder who is a veteran of the Second Punic War and will be a heavy person involved in the Third Punic War. And I think he is really the guy who, who pokes the bear with the stick. He decides that after being really alarmed to see that Carthage is just getting really big, really fast, so rapidly in such a short amount of time, he decides to start ending every political speech, regardless of what it involves with, oh yes, and I am of the opinion that Carthage should be destroyed. So he's kind of like, oh, well, just going to talk about this tax bill or this land redistribution law. Oh, also, I'm of the opinion that Carthage wants to be destroyed. So even a regular scenario of like... Just any bill coming in, it's just like, I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to tag yeah, a rider just, to that. Yeah. Destroy Carthage I'm of the opinion well. that Carthage should be destroyed. Can, yeah. let, let's try and do that. <laughs> kind of like the idea of, I'm going to pop out for some milk. Oh, yeah, and I'm also of the opinion <laughs> that Carthage should <laughs> yeah. be destroyed. Yeah. So he says this enough times that, that they're kind of like, well, maybe this is a real big problem and maybe it is whatever. And maybe like having this really powerful political, um, this really powerful political party could be a big issue. So the Scipio family produced another Scipio. This is the grandson Scipio. And he is going to lead the third Punic War. And this is where Rome pretty much ruins its political reputation. So we'll go a bit into it, but I'd like to give a bit of a background explanation into what the Romans do for the Battle of Carthage. They transport an army to Carthage. They have put them under a lot of pressure and they start their negotiations. Similar to the really out there Athenian democracy that's very shrewd and not very cool, this is so much worse. They have a negotiation with the Carthaginians and they say, listen, we don't want to have war, but we will. But we got a couple of demands. And the first is um, you give us hostages. Now, hostages are very common in ancient warfare. It's very common to take some hostages, usually some noble children, keep them as prisoners. And if something goes wrong, we kill them. And they want to take a couple of hundred Carthaginian uh, nobility and they will use them as hostages reluctantly. The Carthaginians agree to this, but they say, listen, we can't deal with the Romans right now. They're way too strong. We don't really have the, the mechanisms to deal with them. The Romans then kind of come back to them and say, you know, you guys don't really need weapons. Because, you know, you don't want to go to war with us and we don't want to give you really the option of it. So you want to hand over whatever swords, shields, javelins, catapults, anything you pretty much have that could make warfare. How about you just go ahead and hand that over? And the Carthaginians are kind of alarmed. They're like, well, why would we want to really hand that over? And it's like, well, you're suing for peace, aren't you? Or you really want to agree that we won't have anything happen here. So very reluctantly, the Carthaginians hand over all their weaponry. And it's kind of then that the Romans go, well, you know, maybe, just maybe, Carthage needs to move. We don't really want you, you know, as a city port that can trade with the Mediterranean. You're, you might get a little bit too ambitious and maybe you'll build up some more money and maybe you'll get some notions and you'll want to do something. And at this point, the Carthaginians are freaking out because they're kind of saying to themselves, we've just given you loads of hostages and all of our weapons and you want us to, what, up and move? They're like, yes. It's like, but that's outrageous. That No one would agree to this. They said, well, if you don't want really to agree to it, we're going to have war. And, this, but, and this, like, this is where it is so 
absolutely unbelievable for the Carthaginians. We've just, we've given you hostages. We've given you our weapons. And you still want to declare war. This is a, this is outrageous. And they realise at this point, the Carthaginians, how bloodthirsty the Romans are. They do not want to take a chance with a third Carthaginian, let's say, Hamilcar or Hannibal. They don't want to take this chance. They're like, we'll just destroy you forever. And completely destroyed. So for the next three years, Carthage, which is a port city and is able to kind of, you know, get itself some resources by by the sea, is under siege by the Romans. And they have no weapons. They've given away their youth in terms of hostages. So that's that's totally backfired on them. They are stuck here in a siege and it has become everything for their existence. As in, all they have left now is making new weapons inside the city there's reports of uh, and talks and documents of women cutting their hair to make ropes for siege weapons. It's everything that is left of the Carthaginians is put into this. And I suppose it's very grim. It very is a grim. total... I don't want to say it's a genocide, but it's about as close to genocide as you can guess because the Romans... It is. The, the entire Second Punic War, it's all like... It's the kind of stuff that jingoism is made of. It's all exciting, dramatic battles. It's, you know, like, against all odds, victories, you know, being pulled out of nothing. This is just, like, Rome has just mm. ground them down. And, like, you have a city of hundreds of thousands against not a huge army, but, like, the history machine. It gave the Romans well over 90% chance to win this because they weren't fighting any real soldiers at this point. You know, despite the, the numbers difference, it was just... There was nothing left, really, in Carthage. Mm. It was just civilians trying not to yeah. die for as long as possible. And this is the Rome that taints their honour and kind of destroys their reputation because never before have you had in history at this time, uh, well, recorded history at least, somebody be so cooperative and so really compliant with the demands of the invader and yet still be completely annihilated. And this is very much where this is referred to very much as this is the Carthaginian solution. This is what the Romans do to Carthage. They will eventually storm the city. They will eventually kill everyone they can find in terms of men. They'll get the women and children. They will sell them into slavery and they will strip Carthage brick from brick. And some reports or possibly urban legends of the salting the earth so nothing will ever grow there again. And it's what happens. It's a complete and utter obliteration of Carthaginian culture, Carthaginian ideals, and the Carthaginian people. And they are gone. Or there are some small legacies left over from the Carthaginians. There's obviously the recorded history the Romans have, the stories of Hannibal. But there is a city in Spain called Barcelona, which is named after the Barca family. It's kind of founded by them. That That's possibly the only lasting legacy of of Carthaginian influence, that there's a small bit of of Carthaginian influence left in Spain. But other than that, they're non-existent anymore. They they don't have anything to go with. They're they're an extinct people. There there is no Carthaginian language left over. There is no Carthaginian influence. There's no legacy. There was technically a new city bitty built called Carthage by Julius Caesar Caesar yeah. much, much later on. But like it's probably not the exact same location, and it's yes, you know, it's it was a, it's Roman. A, it, is a Roman it was very much. Yeah. It was almost just to to just reinforce, like we own this now. 
Yeah, so I suppose with all of that in mind, let's talk about the top five commanders that we have mentioned today. Now, we did do our all-time list there in comparison to the the list that Hannibal and Scipio proposed. But just for this episode, let's talk about the top five. So could you tell me coming in at number five? Okay, so fifth place general was Hasdrubal Gisco. So he was one of the ones involved in defending Spain, mostly. Uh, One of the main generals... And, you know, if you look at him, if you look at Mago Barca and you look at, Has- at uh, Hasdrubal Barca, their stats are all really similar because they were fighting the same battles mostly. But it's basically they lost more than they won because of Scipio, but they still end up with very average, like only slightly below zero wins over expectation. So in other words, they're basically they were solid generals, not necessarily spectacular, but they were competent, but they just ended up in incredibly tough battles against Scipio and you know they did about as well as okay. could be expected so Hasdrubal, Mago, Hasdrubal Barca, Hasdrubal Gisco and Mago are all ones that are very similar stats and did solid casualties above mm-hmm. expectation but the, the task okay. was a bit too much for them so they are all just in around the minus point zero seven zero eight mark okay so coming in then at number four yeah number four is the most the second most average which sounds even lamer <laughs> general of all time uh, uh that's fabian there uh his wins over expectation was minus 0. Yes. 0.02 uh casualties suffered minus 0. 0.08 casualties dealt mm-hmm. 0.07 and then commander kills both neg- negligible he won one drew one lost one just totally and in slightly below him incidentally is the grading of Hannibal if you only had his battles after Cannae so he did uh, better in terms he did significant casualties about 20% more than expected Mm -hmm. but every other Ah, area he was just kind of alright so number three number three we have Hamilcar and uh, he only had a couple of battles and they weren't spectacular but he won and he set it up he he, if if he hadn't been so solid strategically and hadn't been so good at manoeuvring um, he possibly would have done better, but it's just that he, he got himself into such nice positions before he took battle that he kind of evaded what it is that the history machine really measures. So his, his wins over expectation is only really about three, you know, 0.03 uh, above expectation. He's really, he's, you know, never getting more than kind of maybe 3% above the average here, but uh, there's more than meets the eye with him, and he's definitely an interesting one, and he's a perfect example of where... You can never just look at the data. You yes, always have to look yes, at the context okay. of it. That's good to know. Right, so where would be for our number two? Who's coming in? So number two is Hannibal overall. Um, with, as mentioned earlier, wins over expectation, 0.12. Casualties dealt over expectation, 30% higher than expected. So, yeah, there's there's glimmers that, you know, you can tell that he is doing some serious damage. But the wins over expectation, definitely okay. nothing crazy um only you know he's he's good but not great but um also worth noting as well though he's probably one of the only generals who really has a number of battles that allows him to revert to the mean because he had Mm. far and away more way more than anyone else he had 23 battles Mm -hmm. in our database um which i think is six more than the than the second most which i think is caesar Mm. like you know almost three times the number that or yeah more than three times the number that yes, scipio yeah. has in her database so and scipio has way more mm. than most yeah. than almost anyone else so he's prolific to say the least yeah and then above that again if you had hannibal with all these battles up to and including Cannae, 
where he's commonly regarded as being at his peak, dealt almost 50% more casualties than expected, and killed your commander, like, a massive amount of time. <laughs> like, a scare... Like, because normally that, normally that figure hits around zero. No one... It's yes. very rare. And his was 0.17. So, like, that's... <laughs> That's pretty much every five battles he's taking out an enemy general. Based on the normal expectations, that that ends up being about once every five battles. So, so I suppose then, our number one. So number one then, Scipio Africanus. Wins over expectation, 0.55. Casualties dealt over expectation, 0.57% more than expected. Like he, on average, he's the underdog and he wipes out the enemy army. <laughs> that's his like, average, that's his average that, performance. That's what he does on average. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Scipio, um, like I don't know if anyone else could have taken out Hannibal the way that he did. Like he he's the guy who learned from Hannibal, learned from what he did, and figured out how to counter it, how to take it on, and also what to do with the resources that Rome had. Wow. I well I I suppose Cahill, he was right to be annoyed that he wasn't on that list when they were debating it in that Yeah. History yeah. Machine, History Machine back him up on this one. He thinks he is one of the best. Yeah, it's like, actually, you're the best of your generation. You know, yeah. all-time one of the best. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're the best of the generation we've just talked about, and that's saying a lot then. So, yeah, the History Machine does believe. That's it, Scipio. You are the deal. You are the best. You're, way, you're better than Hannibal, which is saying something. That is incredible. Right. Well, I suppose uh, we've just done our countdown. We've fired through that, and I think we will wrap up this episode on the Punic Wars. And if you do want to reach out to us, we do have a website, historymachinepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter with History Machine Podcast or Facebook with History Machine Podcast as well. And uh, you can email us at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com. The next episode we're going to do is on the big one, the really big name, the huge cheese, Alexander the Great. The one that Scipio, Hannibal, and the History Machine all agree yeah. is in the top three. <laughs> so thanks very much for listening. Uh, That's an endorsement. Yeah, very much. That is quite the endorsement. Thanks very much for listening, and we will chat to you again with the upcoming episode for Alexander the Great. So thanks very much for your time, and you'll hear from us again. All right, best of luck. So I have been Niall. I have been Cahill. And thanks again for your time. Mm-hmm.